0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. You can picture him, right? The wee little man. This is the one. This is the guy. Um, When I was in grad school... uh, my uh, my wife and I, we started attending this church in St. Louis. It was a new church in a new town, and it's always a challenge, isn't it, to go to a new church in a new, in a new place? Um, because it, it means one of a couple of things. It means you're either new to church, like you just haven't been a church-going person, or it means that you are making a transition from a church that you've been familiar with to one that you're you're not familiar with, and it's going to be a place that does things a little differently. Uh, it's going to be a place that, that because, because though the church of Jesus Christ is one, there are no two congregations that are the same, and we tend to love what we're familiar with, right? Um, and so I, it struck me just as I was thinking about even this part of the story I'm going to tell you is that as a as a new congregation of Christ Presbyterian Church, in a very real sense, all of us are new to this. Um, we've been doing this for a little while, but it's not lost on me that it's not a small thing um, to enter into a new church community. And uh, that's what we're doing. Anyway, so we, we, we were at this church, and this church included in its worship service a time when people would would be invited from the congregation to come up to an open microphone and just talk about whatever the Lord was doing in their lives. Uh, So sort of there was an open mic moment um, in the service, and you never really knew what was going to happen. You never knew what you were going to get. Honestly, for me me as a preacher, it's a terrifying thought. Um, You just—you never know. Uh, But you would get, you know, scriptural insights or prayer requests. People would share struggles that that were going on in their lives, and and as new folks in the mix, we were new to this, and so we were experiencing this. And I I just found it really refreshing uh, because there was something just very honest about it. And one day, this this man uh, came up to the microphone. He was. He was a small in stature guy. He was mild-mannered. He was soft-spoken, and he made his way up to the microphone. And this is what he said. He said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end. The other night at dinner, my daughter went to pass me the bowl of peas, and in the exchange, we dropped them. And they went all over the table and all over the floor, and if you know me, if you know anything about me, you know that when something like that happens, I respond in ways that not only ruin my evening, but the evening of everyone around me. But I sat there looking at the peas, waiting for the eruption that I feared would come. And nothing happened. And we, we cleaned it up and we went on with our meal. And the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. I still get choked up thinking about that. Then he went and sat down. And I remember just being kind of stunned in the moment by what just happened here. What just happened was this man was publicly praising God that he didn't lose his ever-loving mind when the peas spilled. And he did it in the context of a community, a church that knew enough about him to rejoice along with him in this. And what struck me about that is this was not a man who was celebrating a radical transformation. This is a person and a church that was celebrating the slow turning of a large ship. And so much of the Christian life is that. And this story of Zacchaeus, in many ways, is that. It's easy to make it a flannel graph. It's easy to make Zacchaeus just a, almost a cartoon character. There's something happening here. The way the gospel is working its way into this community that is transformative. So what I want to do is I want to set the passage in context because that's what we do here, right? We want to understand Scripture in the context of Scripture. And then I want to talk through what happens, and then I want us to move into thinking about the implications for the community that Zacchaeus is a part of. So Luke is writing this passage. Uh, This is Luke 19. In Luke 18 he tells the story of the rich young ruler, right? And in the story of the rich young ruler, there's a young man who comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him to obey the commandments of the Lord. And the rich young ruler, confident in himself, says, I do that, what else? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that was too much. Now, it's not a prescription for every Christian that we sell everything we have and give it to the poor. What's happening here is Jesus is touching on the most precious thing in this man's life, and that is his stuff. And he's saying, You have to be willing to lay everything down, you can't serve both God and money. This was the place where Jesus made that statement. It's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We live in, you know, a wealthy place. We're all, by the world's standards, wealthy people. And so, incidentally, in a conversation earlier this week with Bob Bradshaw, who is the executive director at Christ Pres he remarked, he said something that I thought was really powerful. He said um, that he sees more people survive seasons of crisis and loss than he sees people survive seasons of abundance and affluence. That we do better surviving crises when our worlds are burning down spiritually than we do surviving those seasons where everything we want we have. So Jesus' disciples respond when Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through a needle's eye. They say, well, that's impossible. Who then can be saved? And Jesus responds by saying that with God, all things are possible. God can do the impossible. This work of saving we who are bound to the things of this world And what's beautiful is just one chapter later, we get this story of Zacchaeus. It follows that statement. And here what we have is a hope-filled example of a picture of God doing the impossible, of God saving somebody who is consumed with his wealth. He does it. Zacchaeus is described here as a chief tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. That's the only place in the gospel where that term is used, chief tax collector. And this happens in Jericho. And Jericho is this city that sits um, right on the Jordan River River on the border between Israel and Jordan, up by the Dead Sea, and it's where the, the fresh water of the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. That's where Jericho is located. And just to the, what I guess it would be the east of Jordan, is a, a basically a, a passageway that was called the King's Highway. And it was the strategic route that connected Africa and Asia and Europe. So basically all the worlds came together Right there, and Jericho was kind of like right at the crux of it, which made it a really strategic city for import, export, for travel, for anything kind of uh, intercontinental that was happening at the time. And as the Roman Empire would be want to do, they made that a place where you would be taxed just to go through it. And there were a lot of taxes that were gathered there. And Zacchaeus was somebody who worked there as a chief tax collector, which meant that he ran a tax collection crew. <laughs> Taxation was his business, and apparently business was good. He did well. Nobody likes to pay taxes. This is a universal truism, right? If you, I mean, raise your hand if you do. I don't see... <laughs> I don't see that hand, right? Nobody likes to pay taxes, which is why the tax man has never been a particularly popular job. But for the Israelites, the reality of taxation in Roman-occupied Palestine was even harder to stomach. Why? Well, here's the thing. Tax collectors, who were often Israelites, were hired by Rome to ensure that people paid their taxes to Rome. And so the first and most obvious offense here is that the tax collector's job was to gather Israelite money to fund the Roman Empire's occupation of the promised land. I mean, that's just distasteful from beginning to end, right? So we don't want them here, but they're here. They're taking our money to fund them being here. We're monotheists. They're polytheists. They, they, they have no respect for our tradition, our faith, our God. And the, and the second part that's offensive about this is that the tax collector makes his living by charging more than what's due to Rome and keeping the excess. So that's how they made their living is they would just take more than they needed to give to Rome. And tax collectors were often, they often decided for themselves how much they wanted to take. And naturally, many of them did very well for themselves financially because of this. So many of them were very wealthy and they were wealthy off the taxes of their own countrymen. And so this was Zacchaeus. People just hate him. There's nothing to like about the guy, right? He's very wealthy because he acquired his fortune from the pockets of his neighbors. And when this is your job, when you have a job like this, you learn to deal. You learn to be able to lay your head on your pillow at night and get up in the morning. right? You develop thick skin. You learn how to deal with disdain. You take comfort in your wealth. You say things like you're just jealous. You hide behind the imperial power of Rome and you shrug that it's only business. In other words, Zacchaeus knew very well why his community despised him. And he learned not to let it bother him that much. In reality, though, he's miserable. He has to be, right? How do you live in a community where you know everyone hates you and they hate you because of what you do and what you do has made you prosper, and so he, he is despised by his entire community except for those who also make their wealth in the same way he does. And then on top of that, he's short. Right? It's a little detail scripture gives us for no other reason than just to ignite the imagination and to say, here you have a guy who's compensating, right? Here you have a guy whose whole ambition in life was perhaps driven by the need to compensate for his stature. Jesus gives Zacchaeus an invitation to change. And what's beautiful about the passage is that God is the one who's going to do the change. He's going to be the one who does the necessary change, and then Zacchaeus responds to it. Jesus brings salvation into Zacchaeus' world, and then Zacchaeus responds. Zacchaeus is a person who knows about Jesus. Most people do at this point because his miracles are well-known, miracles which include raising Lazarus from the dead. They're widely known. He hears that Jesus is passing through his town and he wants to get a look and to see he has to climb a tree. It's undignified, but it's necessary and it's effective. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he invites himself to the tax collector's house for dinner and to stay. And this invitation is at the same time an unexpected kindness to Zacchaeus, and it's also an offense to everyone else. No one is pleased that this has just happened. Apparently, Jesus has no sense. He has no standards. Apparently, he'll just dine with anybody, even somebody like this. And we don't know I love the absence of detail in scripture, that you don't know what was said during the dinner, right? You don't, you don't have this, this detailed account of all the things that Jesus has said to him. But what we do know is that by the end of it, Zacchaeus wants to repent of the ways that he has exploited his community. And he says, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What do you do with a repentance like that? I mean, he's telling us, right? When The details of his repentance suggest his crime. He's repenting and he's saying, this is what I will do. It means that his sins are this. I've neglected the poor and I've exploited and defrauded my community. And I want to make that right. And so Jesus says that on that day, salvation has come to Zacchaeus. And what I want us to notice now as we start to turn this over in our own relationships, in our own communities that we're a part of, is that uh, salvation comes to Zacchaeus before any act of reconciliation has actually happened. So he's done nothing yet. Salvation doesn't require change first. Salvation does not require change First, because salvation is not a work you do. It's a work God does. Change is in response to salvation, not the cause of it. And this is the gospel, right? Salvation is a free gift from God in Christ, and then learning how to live in a way that honors God is what follows as a result of that in response to it. But if we get the order backward here, we lose the gospel entirely. If we get the order backward and we say, change first, then God's favor, then salvation, we've lost the gospel because then we're just saving ourselves and none of us can do that. The result of Zacchaeus' faith is that he seeks then reconciliation with his community. He wants to respond to the grace that has been shown to him. We have a theological term for what's happening here. sanctification, right? The Christian life has basically three acts. I'm way simplifying this, but it has three acts, basically. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is when we are declared righteous in the sight of God because of the finished work of Christ when our faith is in him, right? So we're declared righteous, and we are in the sight of God. Sanctification, then, is the process of living in that. It's cooperating with the Holy Spirit and learning how to follow Christ, learning how to imitate Christ. And then glorification is the day when either we go to meet him when we pass from this life, or he comes to meet us and returns, and, we're, and sin is done away with forever and every sad thing. But sanctification is the part of our lives where we are living in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, following Jesus, being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to become what we've already been declared to be. And so to desire sanctification means we have to deal honestly with ourselves before the Lord. It involves a willingness for God to dredge the deepest, darkest waters of our story and our soul and our heart is, Lord, transform me. Lead me in paths of reconciliation with those I, I, I've broken relationships with. And it's hard for us to do this because our inner lives are messy and secret. right? We have messy and secret inner lives. But to grow in righteousness, we have to be, a, we have to be willing to admit our unrighteousness And desire to see it change. I will stop neglecting the poor. And I will restore fourfold to those I've defrauded. And sanctification is like a slow turning of a ship. It just doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly. And sometimes it feels like we're walking backward even. Right? It's often measured in strange little Increments like not losing your temper over spilled peas at a dinner table and counting that as evidence of the love and the mercy of God at work. Zacchaeus, he's a road ahead of him, and it's a hard road that he has ahead of him. He's got some things to do. And you know, so does his community. His community has a road ahead of them as well because what do they have to do? They have to receive Zacchaeus' attempts to reconcile. They have to cooperate. They have to cooperate with his repentance. And there's not one of us in this room who right now in our life, in some relationship we have, where that's not a... a, A responsibility we're being called to. I'm being called to cooperate with the repentance of another person, to receive it, to believe the best, to not reject. Because Zacchaeus is responsible for a lot of just brokenness. He's broken a lot of things. I'm sure that we can all relate to him too, right? We can relate in some way to being entangled in some pattern of sin and we become like the albatross who's tangled up in the discarded fishing net, right? You've all seen that image. And they're just tangled and they need to be set free. And the more we struggle, the more entangled we become. And so we need somebody to cut us free but whenever anybody approaches to cut us free, we fight even more and we get even more tangled. We fight against their presence. We fight against their touch. It's as the Reverend McLean said, and a river runs through it. Each one of us will at one time in our lives look upon a loved one in need and ask the same question. We are willing to help, Lord, but what, if anything, is needed? For it is true that we can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or more often than not, the part we have to give is not wanted. And so it is with those we live with and should know who elude us, but we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding. What an amazing movie. If it's been a while since you've seen it or you've never seen it, you know, it's gonna rain all week, just go ahead and watch it. (laughs) But it's only when we surrender that we welcome help, right? Otherwise, we're just fighting, and we're fighting. It's only when we trust our Savior that we allow the shears to come near and trim both the net, and the feather to free us. Zacchaeus is pledging to let the shears of honor and justice clip his wings for the sake of setting him free. And there's not a person in his community who doesn't need to help him with that. And it won't be easy for him just as it's never easy for any of us. And yet, with this passage before us, we need to honestly ask the question, where in my life do I need to be set free? Where am I like Zacchaeus? What are the things I need to repent of? Where do I need to be set free? And do I welcome help? And if I resist help, why? What is it that I'm resisting for? This whole thing is happening. Zacchaeus climbing the tree, Jesus saying, I'm coming to your house, this dinner happening, people judging, Zacchaeus repenting and seeing his life with clear eyes. While all of this is happening, Jesus has an overall response to the entire thing. And his overall response to the entire thing, to the mercy shown to the tax collector, to the grumbling crowds, To the slow turning of the ship that Zacchaeus pledges to do, Jesus says, Look, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to do the impossible, He came to lead a rich crook through the eye of a needle. And so it's not too late for you. It's not too late for those you love. No one is so far gone that they're beyond the reach of God's kindness in the grace of Christ. No one. Even if you are right now in the act of deceiving and exploiting and betraying and defrauding. You are not beyond Christ's invitation to change, and neither are you hidden from his view. When Jesus singled out Zacchaeus and invited himself over, he was reaching out to presumably the most unlikely and despised person in town. And Jesus was after more than a meal and a place to stay, he was after Zacchaeus' heart. And he got it. Respond to the grace of Christ. Cooperate with his Holy Spirit. Celebrate when you don't blow up when someone spills the peas. And know that the work of reconciliation is often a process that takes time. Restitution of broken or taken things and restoration of broken or tabled relationships. Seeking this does not burden God. It is, in fact, the will of God. I came to seek and save the lost. Listen, we have an enormous capacity to hurt each other, we do. We have an enormous capacity to make a grand wreck of our own lives. This does not prevent Christ from working. No matter how tangled we become. This is why Jesus came in the first place. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for calling Zacchaeus down from the tree and out of his life of uh, relational catastrophe and spiritual catastrophe, and for calling him into a relationship with you. Thank you for the picture of of you demonstrating compassion and mercy on what is presumably the most despised person in his community. And thank you that the way the gospel works is that when Zacchaeus responds to your grace, everybody in town has to cooperate to some measure if they're going to be a part of the work you're doing in his life. Lord, give us a graciousness with each other as we do that. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. Thank you that with God all things are possible. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.